Hi, everybody. I'm Bhavan Turatya. I'm the CEO and co-founder at Zeta. If you run a search on LinkedIn of all the people who have ever worked in a company called Directi and currently have the title of founders, you will get more than 250 results. This amazing company called Directi is equal to the PayPal of India, just like you have a PayPal mafia in the US, which includes people like Reid Hoffman from LinkedIn and Elon Musk, uh, no need to introduce him. Uh, similarly, you have Directi in India and Directi was founded by Bhavan Turatya when he was just a teenager. He was still in college when he decided to put his innate curiosity and intellect to use by building a business, by writing code, developing websites. And this was way, way back in an era where internet had just about entered India and people were not even aware of how to go online. This episode is really tracing almost a three-decade evolution of India's internet landscape, India's startup landscape by the pioneer, by somebody who, according to Wikipedia, is among the 100 richest people in India. And Bhavan amazingly did not raise any external capital while building Directi. Directi was eventually sold for about $150 million on dollars. And today, Bhavan is the founder of multiple businesses, with the biggest one being Zeta, which is a unicorn in the banking tech space. Listen on to this amazing multi-decade journey of the man who really is the pioneer of startups in India. I remember back in school, Dad would buy four or five other books paid curriculum written by different authors. When I started actively programming, he bought a ton of computer science books and I devoured them cover to cover. And then he bought a lot of biographies. So during that school time, I spent a lot of time reading. This was the time when you had biographies of like Apple, IBM, Microsoft, Xerox. So it was the Google, Facebook era, still the computing 1.0. And I had, I must have read like more than six or seven biographies on Bill Gates and Microsoft, several on Apple, several on IBM, Xerox, Chrysler, McDonald's, even non-tech companies. So in that phase going sixth grade to 10th grade, I think two decisions got made. One is whenever I do, I want to do sort of something in computer science. And second is I want to do something on my own. I really, like the entrepreneurial bug bit me early on. I'm like, I want to do something on my own. Don't want a job, want to create, you know, large impact. And, and so that got decided pretty early on. Now, of course, my, my parents encourage the notion, but their perspective was if you wanted to do something in computer science, then you need to join good computer engineering college. And so post 10th grade, I was a meritorious student in the 10th standard. I basically joined a college called Rupra in Mumbai, did my junior college, SYGC there, was studying for my JE, started looking up the curriculum for computer science engineering. And that's when I got a bit disillusioned. Like I don't want to spend four years studying stuff that in some sense I already know because I already studied advanced computer programming and that. And so I think at that point, I started down this path of like, I'm going to drop out and start something on my own. And then of course, it became a negotiation exercise with my parents and eventually settled into, I think I ended up getting, joining Sydney after my NYJC to do a, uh, to get a BCom degree on site and started my first company at that point in time. And so, yeah, I guess getting my undergrad because that's what parents wanted, but but didn't end up pursuing these sort of standard engineering medical paths. So, uh, so yeah, I started early and trains of 
what do I achieve people like that? Uh, that me and my, my younger brother co-founded then secretly. So, yeah, it's back then. So, in, in what way? Like, uh, did someone come to you and say, okay, uh, I have this problem, solve it for me. And you realize that a lot of people have this problem and I can make a business out of it. W- was that the origin or? So me and my brother were already in some consulting. Without the basically a software and like, oh, like do some web design for somebody that time. We said now sort of already made it in this country. We had these TCP IP and chat accounts from BSNL. And I was, again, hooked on the internet. And both of us were sort of either doing some tiny software stuff, tiny consulting, setting up people's networks, setting up people's lands, assembly computers. Yeah, what's your age difference? He's younger than you, right? Yeah, he's two years younger. And so, so we were diving in all this stuff. I actually started this. I mean, I started designing websites for people for a bit. Really again, short bit. And then I started building that job site software back in 1996, 97 for about a year and a half. Starting by first building a Visual Basic and then on ESP, which was the web application programming language back then. So built out this whole sort of tool that would enable people to post vacancies and individuals to post resumes and the system would sort of match there and provide recommendations and all that stuff. But the truth was there were less than a couple of hundred thousand people on the internet back then, like seriously on the internet. So the software or the idea was a bit too early. It was due to sort of change from start. Well, I guess probably not necessarily, but at least I tried peddling it for about a year and a half. Got some interest, got some clients, but nothing really took off. And then that paved the way into saying, well, actually, you know what? This is the early days of the internet. People need to set up a web presence. A friend of ours was actually running a small mini hosting company at that point in time. And that gave us the idea and we said, well, why not we create sort of a platform for okay, technologies that enables people to sort of set up a web presence um, end-to-end. So we borrowed about 25,000 rupees from that, bought first server sort of in the US and in a company called Alabanza and started selling web space, web hosting space, started selling domain names back then. You buy them from Internet for $70 for two years and sold them for $100 to customers. So we started doing that, became a reseller of Cookhouse, which was enough to me to start a wholesale one and, uh, and then really provided the most cost effective way to get on the get domain name country. I remember this one NASCOM conference where we we had these sort of yellow colored coupons, discounts on registering domain names. I still remember it was like 599 rupees or whatever, which was an unheard of price back. It was already 30% cheaper than the lowest price. And we must have sold like thousands of them in just that one conference. We had our, you know, more than 20, 50, 20,000 of these coupons floating around in that conference. Most of the floors were covered with them. The people who had basically picked them up from the booth and dropped them somewhere. And that actually gave us budget to become our own iconic domain registrar. So we became one of the first fully operational domain registrars from India, made it to a wholesale business ourselves. So we start signing up resellers in various countries, ended up signing up more than 50,000 resellers with about five to 7,000 really active resellers across the globe who would sell our products and services to their inspectors, you know, customer base everywhere, like from Turkey to Toronto, uh, everywhere across the globe. I'd like to kind of zoom in a little on this. So the initial days when you were reselling, like when you were buying for $70, selling for 100 how, how was that happening? How were you getting customers? How did you build it up? So very interesting question. So interestingly enough, when Internet started selling domain names back in 98 and we were reselling through Internet, you know, two cows came in data. The only registrar registry in the world was actually Internet. It was owned by a company called Network Solutions, basically. back then. And the US government had given them a contract to manage the DNS and they were the only ones selling domain names. Anybody want to buy them, had to go there. And most customers would come to an agency like us and buy from us. So we had a website. So by the way, Internet had no API. It was a templated email. So the email had like some 30, 40 fields. You have to fill it out exactly. Send that email to a particular email address. You maintain a deposit account with them. If the email that you send is properly formatted, that email entry processes it on their side, registers the domain name, and then sends it back. 
We were the first company, I think, in the country to create a simulated form-based experience on top of it. So we actually programmed this form, which would collect this application on a web page. Now it seems trivial and simple, but back then again, it was it was kind of relatively new. And then the form would automatically create a workflow. Somebody from within the organization, which is, I say organization was me, my brother, and one other person, we would actually review that everything is fine. We would collect the money from the customer by invoicing them and then process it by submitting it. It would send out the email and then receive a confirmation to figure out where the process. Then we went to two cars, two cars, Opal API. Because by then, by the time two cars launched, ICANN had actually already liberalized the process by saying that the inter- internet will manage the registry and they will make, I think, $10 or something like that for, or $8 or something like that for registrations. And then anybody can become a registrar and interact with the registry through an API and expose another API and talk less. That's what two cars did. And we then used that API. And then I remember back in the day, this is much after, even after we became two cars reseller, one of the big problems and big points we had was collecting money from people. And so spent a considerable amount of time. Because there was no payment gateway. There was no payment gateway. I remember the epiphany like was sitting outside and this was India. This was like the biggest problem, right? You went, you thought, Small checks of like three, four thousand, five thousand. We're just sending servers worth lakhs at, at some point. But sometimes, like, we'd have to go and sit at a client's place and sit outside their office for four hours to collect one tiny check. And I, I literally remember this. Like, I remember the point where we went to this client's office. Uh, I was sitting out to collect the jacket. I was inside. They would meet me for three and a half, four hours. I'm like, such a waste of time. So we actually flipped uh, and we built um, one of the first payment gateways in India. It was called Transecute. Um, D-R-A-N-S-E-C-U-T. Eventually sold that business to CC Avenue out of several years. But we built one of the first payment gateways on top of Citibank and then eventually on top of okay. Access and HDFC, I think, were being used at some point, etc. And we started selling it to other players. But originally it was built simply because we're like, oh, we're going to scale this business. We can't afford to sit and, you know, be bothered with collecting money. So yeah, spend some time kind of automating the process early on. But how did you build demand? Like, was it that there was nobody else doing it and therefore the demand was organic or like? I think we spent a bunch of time. These were old school traditional methods back then. The very first quarter, I remember when I bought that server in Alamanza, the very first quarter. Which year was this when you bought that server? I think somewhere 97, late 97, the latter half of 97. So... The first quarter of 1998, there used to be this annual NASCOM conference in Delhi at Pragati Meda, which was like the largest IT conference in the country every year. And so I didn't have money back then to participate as an exhibitor. But I remember I took the Rajdani, spent that one day in travel, etc. And I went from booth to booth. There were more than like 300 or 250, 300 different exhibitors. And I spent those two days going to every exhibitor and selling my product to them. It's supposed to the way down. And in that one exhibition, I made enough sale to both recover our initial investment and pay for the next year for the servers without actually, like literally in that one conference in two days. And so we repeated that. We participated in every conference subsequently with our own boots and stuff. That's the one I was talking about when we sold these two girls domain names. That was in Mumbai. Again, a NASCOM conference took to place the World Trade Center. And we participate in these uh, conferences with uh, tacky looking boots back then. <laughs> like, we had like this yellowish golden sort of logo uh, or website. So we had this cloth that would cover on these sides. It was a pretty tacky looking boot. And by then, we had a few salespeople. So that was one approach. We do some tiny bits of advertising. And you were selling, like, get your business online. That was the sales pitch. Like, we'll give you a domain, we'll host it, we'll do the web development also like like you were doing web no no we no we don't do any web development so only the domain hosting email shopping cart 
all of this sort of backend software, backend platforms with no website design. We partnered with a bunch of designers. You wanted to be a product company. You, you didn't want to get into a services. Couldn't scale the services model at all. So we didn't want to bother there. And then we also started, so one was exhibitions conferences where we would directly have entrepreneurs and small businesses sort of operate with us. And then a lot of resellers started signing up with us there. Second is we went out to and using sort of yellow pages back then and directories, went and met up with a bunch of web design companies and web development companies, started asking, getting them to buy co-locations, decks, we had channel partners. And we grew pretty big, very fast. We had like NASCAR hosting with us. We had CMIE. We had like some really big names, like a bunch of different big brands, more than 150 big brands. So that became like both through word of mouth, online PR, as well as sort of conferences, etc. That became kind of like the way to get us was. Well, what kind of revenues were you doing by the time you hit, say, 99, 2000, like what, two, three years down the line? I don't remember exactly. I think we made four or five lakhs in the first year or the first few months. I think the next year, I think every year we multiplied by a team factor. Like I think we multiplied significantly. By the time we were two, three years out, we were already in these sort of crores of rupees in revenue because we started hosting some of the largest portals in the country. So then people started buying some massive equipment and servers. Before the crash occurred, some of the large web 1.0 portals and platforms were hosted now with us. So when did you go global? Like till 2000, you were India focused or like when did you become a Registered with ICANN as a domain registrar. As soon as we got our ICANN updated registrar, so that was 99, late 99. And the boom was already starting to get to a bus. This was still, it hadn't yet gotten there. But 2000 onward, we could clearly see the sort of demise, etc. But so 99, we got our ICANN accreditation. And the first version of Necti reseller program sort of launched then in Right after that in 2001, yeah, I think it was yeah, either 99, 2000 or 2000 last month. I, again, I don't remember exactly. But 2001, I do remember that I attended also the first ICAD accredited registrar's conference in Stockholm. It's actually also my first first ever trip to Europe. And uh, and so then we started coming global from there. We kind of took the wholesale model because we didn't have a presence in various countries. So built out our own API and web-based interface uh, where resellers could self-service themselves and, and buy domains and buy hosting, either through the web-based interface or through our APIs and kept optimizing that platform. It's called Portable, basically. So that was our first product. Like essentially, you built a 2Cows plus hosting kind of a solution. 2Cows plus hosting, but we went one step further. Predominantly, we started servicing resellers by not just providing them an API, so we built something called SuperSite, which enabled resellers to, it was a ready-made end-to-end website that you could just directly launch, you know, website on. We plugged in the payment gateway so you could also, as a reseller, collect payments on it. We built a ticketing interface so you could actually gather support requests from your customers. We actually built a business in a box so that more web design companies were mostly a lot of these companies that were reselling wholesale domains. They didn't have the wherewithal to kind of code everything by hand themselves. So we sort of built this entire platform out that would enable them to run a full business enterprise. Amazing. Essentially, th- this is like the early digital version of what, say, a McDonald's would have been doing through franchises where they had like a franchisee in a box, everything processized. You built the same thing for the online world. You must have been the pioneers in doing something like that. Pretty much, yeah. For the hosting domain space, yes, we were pioneers. And for the long, longest period of time, actually, there was nobody else who had a full-fledged platform, a full-stack platform that each other. And this, I'm assuming, must have been a profitable business. Like, like did you need to raise funds for it? Or like, how is that happening? I mean, the first finance from that point onwards, March 20, March 98 onwards, we 
always be profitable. So there was never a point in time when there was any year where we were negative cash flow. We were always positive cash flow through and through all the way to the end. So never raised capital. Could we have grown faster had we raised capital? In hindsight, perhaps. I think we were also learning while we were learning. You know, I think it was early days of business and we made our fair share of mistakes and making the wrong bets, building the wrong stuff. And so perhaps raising a lot of capital we actually have, could have also led to our demise. Who knows? So, so in some sense, we had the opportunity to grow at a steady pace and, and didn't need any capital throughout that. So uh, I want to understand how the hosting you are offering is different from AWS. Like typically the word cloud computing, I think people started talking of it only post AWS launch. So and I'm not exactly like a computer science engineer or something. So help me understand what was that evolution where post AWS people started calling it cloud computing and pre AWS people used use terms like hosting. I mean, hosting still exists, I guess, in some sense, but cloud is a different paradigm since that back in the day, what you had was, if I bought a server, or if I eventually we had our own data center cages, and our own location boxes, and got a Dell box, and we installed Linux on it, we installed Apache on it, and then we created our own control panel. And what we're kind of doing is, we're taking the disk space and we're basically allocating a certain amount of disk space to a website whose configuration sits in Apache. We're creating a user on that platform to which you can do an SFTP upload of files. Those files can be PHP per code that can essentially run on that computer, use resources of the computer, and you install a MySQL database, and then again, create a user and a database on that MySQL database and give you, you know, a certain amount of space and a certain amount of database capacity. So fundamentally, you're getting a small slice within existing applications. Whereas the cloud, what you're doing is, you know, you've got a virtual machine, which is fully isolated from other VMs, please logically fully isolated from other VMs. And you have operating system control. So in shared hosting, you wouldn't get operating system control. You're getting a portion of, let's say, you're getting shared services. It's like application service providing, basically. You're getting a shared application service. Whereas in, in cloud computing, you're basically getting an uh, isolated virtual machine and you're getting operating system access. You can install your own operating system. You can control everything all the way down to sort of the kernel of the So that's the key distinction. There was a phase in the middle where the hosting industry also started offering something called VPSs, which is virtual private servers, which in many ways was, I wouldn't even say a precursor, it was exactly that virtualization layer. But, you know, it, it never got, it never caught on until basically cloud as a paradigm came up. But with cloud, you also go beyond just infrastructure as a service, right? You also go to pass. So you've got RDS, you've got S3, you've got not just compute plus. What are these things? RDS, S3. So RDS is the database as a service, S3 is storage as a service. So you get this platform as a service now, such that you don't have to worry about the scalability of the database. The underlying system take care of it. You're using it as a service as opposed to using the operating system to install your own database, manage the scalability and uptime reliability of it uh, yourself. So you're almost outsourcing the SLE now um, of um, a database or storage or things like to, you know, Amazon is instead of... Uh, Instead of having to manage that yourself, basically. But even to today, you'll be that tens of millions of websites registered every every quarter still use shared hosting as their fundamental way of setting up their online presence. So, you know, it's like the internet doesn't kill TV or radio. <laughs> it just, it just, you know, every legacy still continues to stick around. So there's a lot of people that still use that. So I'd love to hear about some of those bad calls you took, some of those mistakes you made, what you learned from them. What was the reason for you to make that bad call, like you were saying just now that you had the journey of making wrong calls, making right calls. So what are some of those learnings that you had? I mean, the biggest one is the biggest set of bad calls got classified under building stuff that nobody needed or creating businesses that were, that nobody needed, like the product didn't really have traction, or at least I didn't manage to get traction for them. As an example, we started selling domains hosting 
in actually three different models. So we started with these sellers. These are website companies, web hosting companies who would buy from us and sell to their customers. Then we said, we go one level upstream. So we took the entire platform we built out of box. We started providing it to other ICANN accredited registrars so that they could actually, in a sense, compete with us. That business called Logic Boxes. And we got a series of close to 100 different domain registrars around the world using that platform. So that was kind of a upward integration in some sense. That was like a SaaS service, basically. You were charging a subscription or... Yes, it was a SaaS service. You were charging a revenue share or a percentage of their revenue, basically. A fee fixed, a fee per unit that they sold. And then we also went down integrated and said that we launched a end customer brand called Big Rock, which sold hosting and domains directly to end customers. And so we were kind of selling to end customers, resellers and registrars. And then we... Sometime in 2007, 2008, I think thereabouts, I also decided to launch another brand that would cater to affiliates, bloggers or anybody else who wants to resell, but not resell under their own name, rather resell our product under our name, and, but on commissions, etc. And that we ran for about a year and a half and it failed miserably and didn't really work. And did, uh, would have been for Big Rock, right? Like, like bloggers and all means that. So Big Rock was direct to customer. This was a separate brand created for Affiliates, basically. We would do affiliate marketing and gain permission. And just, yeah, yeah. It's so, so, year and a half later, we shut it down. You know, we had to let a few people go at that point in time. The team was working on it because we, we didn't need them for other projects. So that, then there was a, a dark project to be ran where we created this website design marketplace. So we were like, okay, people come to us. They buy a domain and host And a lot of people come to us, then consumers. But they're not finishing their entire, like, this is by itself not sufficient. They also need a web designer. So we created this marketplace where we enable website designers across the country to register with us and send their services and we try and get permission along the way, etc. And that also, we took it to a certain level, but it didn't really materialize as much. Something like an Upwork. Yes, explicitly for, however, just website design. So, so yeah, those in the early days, uh, stunts of other stuff. The, prior to building Slock, before that, I built out this end consumer chat app called Talk.2 as a master application that enables you to sort of chat and send messages across various channels, you know, Jabber, Google, etc. And that was like a, we spent seven years on it and didn't really have any legs. I spent a lot of time and effort and investment buying it and then we let go. This talk that too was like a WhatsApp competitor, is that? It's like a WhatsApp competitor back in the day. So this was 2011, 2014, 2010, 2014, basically. So yeah. That was disastrous. And lots of product failures where I ended up picking up things that I thought people would need and I had a huge degree of confidence. But to be honest, it was there wasn't a clear persona and a clear value proposition, a clear problem that we were solving for, how we were making a 10x difference in that problem space. You know, all that was um, framework came afterwards. After making all those mistakes, I'm like, now I know what a, how to go about templatizing a business plan for what was the way in which you were thinking about direct Were you thinking of it as a holding company under which you are creating business units and each of which will have its own PNL? Or were you thinking of it more as like I am a PNL company and I have different products that I am selling? Like, like what was the way? It started out with the latter only. So it was an operating company and we had Reseller Club and then Logic Boxes and then Big Rock, all these brands and different personas, different products basically. So it started out that way. But then eventually... You know, we sold direct in 2014. Sales process started in 2013. So then after that, the other companies would be sort of independent, independent companies. Okay, so basically some of the products within direct you did not sell, but spun them out as independent companies. Well, 
There was one that was already independent. It's a company called Radix that I still that I still own. Radix is a new top level domain registry. We own various top level domains. So we own dot online, dot store, dot tech, dot space, dot host, dot website, dot site, and so on and so forth. So that I started in 2011, started planning for it. 2012 started basically participating in the options to buy these CLDs, one some of the best ones in the market. That was already spun out for started as an independent company. Uh, my younger brother, Dave, had already kind of uh, split out and started Media.net as a separate company in the ad tech space. And with it, the long connect type per se. So he started that as a completely independent enterprise. And grew that and eventually sold it. He sold it for $900 million to a other company in China in 2016. And then this chat software was running as a product on the side. And then we converted into a company after pivoting into Flock, basically, which just became an enterprise messaging tool. We pivoted. It became kind of an organic process. There wasn't a... Uh, clear structured plan which did what strategically made sense. Okay. And looking back, do you think you spread yourself too thin? Maybe like with more focus on a few product lines, those would have scaled to bigger height or like was it the nature of the market and the business that you needed to continuously find more product lines? Gun to my head, I would say the former rather than the latter. And even today, I believe in some sense, I, I started a few. So Radix, by the way, right now is self-operational to a point where they don't need me. They haven't needed me for many years. So the CEO there, tons of people out there who are super capable and they actually they actually run the company. I provide some level of strategic guidance and, and an ongoing basis kind of assist. So I really predominantly work on Titan, which has two products, Titan. And that's the communications business space where we provide email and chat and, and a couple of things to micro SMBs and SMBs across the globe. And recently WordPress partnered with us and invested in that company. And and on Zeta, which is a banking tech company with sort of SoftBank and MasterCard now as our investors and uh, that provides technology to banks and fintechs. This is really where I spent my most of my attention. But going back to your question, I would certainly say focus on doing one thing. So let me actually clarify. It's kind of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, I would say for the most part, focusing on something invariably will help grow much bigger because you end up solving for all the unknown unknowns in that space and you compound the effect of those learnings over time. But at the same time, the other thing I've found in many, many entrepreneurs is you have to select the right problem, the right space also. If you end up selecting the wrong space and that the potential opportunity in that space itself is small, like micro SMB hosting today, which was what direct I was into, the largest bunch of companies combined across the globe, each of them are between five to eight billion dollars in valuation and peak time. So technically there's an upper cap there because micro SMB hosting has that much revenue period. If I tune into cloud, that would have been a pivot into a completely different company. So it would still be the same notion that I'm starting a different company. So you select, so certain spaces have upper caps. You select the right problem, like with Zeta and with Titan, you know, it's, it's communication and email, which uh, which I think is a big space, six billion email accounts across the globe. With Zeta, payments and banking is a big space. If you've got a big space, I think focus will definitely help. So I would always prescribe it, even though I might not necessarily have practiced it every single point in time in my life. But I will say that, yeah, spreading yourself thin is not is not beneficial. Why did you want to sell off uh, Directi? I didn't actually. So we were running for running it for from 98 to 2012. It's 14 years. And then two more years until we actually sold it. In 2011, I was starting Radix. And I, because Radix is a GTLD registry, which registrars work with, so... Directi was a customer, for instance, of, of Radix. But in 2011, 2012, I was like, why don't I get some partnerships out there preemptively before I start the business? So I approached uh, Hari, who's the CEO of Endurance in Nashville. That's the company that ended up buying, who was the CEO of Endurance. And that's the company that ended up buying us. 
And Lawrence Large, now Newfold, actually, they didn't change their name because they merged with Bank.com, but they had acquired more than 30, 40 hosting companies, grown to about a billion dollars in revenue. And so I approached him as a, somebody connected us and I approached him saying, do you want to invest money in Radix? And I still remember I met him in a botanic Dubai, I think Lila Meridian or something like that. Gave him a two-hour pitch on what Radix can do and all that stuff. And 48 hours later, I think he calls me up. He says, I'm not really interested in investing in Radix, but will you sell me your company? Will you sell me direct action since you're anyway starting this deal? And I said, that wasn't the plan. No intention, blah, blah. And the courting period went on. How, how, what revenue was Direct Eye doing at that time? I think about 70 million, 60, 60 million, 65 million ish or so. And so he continued courting us for a few months and both me and my brother kind of looked at all the things we could do together in the sense that even after selling it, it, it along with endurance would resell Radix domains and there were a bunch of other strategic possibilities. And so we took a strategic call. And so what started as a courting in 2012 took until February 2014, I think, to close. So, so there wasn't any intention to sell. It just, it just happened to be the case. Yeah, how much did you sell it for? Is that public knowledge? Yes, I think it's a total 160 million, meaning that there was some cash, there was some stock, and there was some strategic deferred revenue aspects. So if you add on a trap, we sold that stock and we, whatever cash we had at some point in time altogether, so we ended up putting about 160. So uh, as a multiple of revenue with today's multiple, seems on the lower side, right? Like, Oh, it's insane. Today's multiples are insane. I think they've sold Media.net for 900 million. I believe the company at peak was making 250 million and, or 270 million in revenue. I might be off by a little bit here and there. Profitable company making about 50, 60 million, even dollars, some of that again. I, like, I don't know the exact numbers, but I think if we hadn't sold it, it would have been worth maybe five, seven times more. But back then, the multiples were on realistic DCF. Right? You do a discounted cash flow model. Do an NPV based on a median average cost of capital. Now, nowadays, things are changing again a little bit, but at least the last year and a half, like it was just like revenue multiples for no fundamentals uh, necessarily. I, people weren't following fundamentals necessarily. So, if you like to hear stories of founders, then we have tons of great stories from entrepreneurs who have built billion dollar businesses. Just search for the Founder Thesis Podcast on any audio streaming app like Spotify, Ghana, Apple Podcasts, and subscribe to the show. Help me understand what is Radix exactly? Like, what is a top level domain registry? So, just like you register domains in the dot com space, you have upshare.com. Um, or, or .net or .org. These are called TLDs, the com, net, and all. So if you register upshare.com, nobody else can because it's a single. And so there's a central registry that maintains the fact that you have registered upshare.com and Bhavan's registered Bhavan.com or director.com or so on and so forth. That registry contract, if you remember, I told you back then, com, net, or PDU were given by the US government to Ethernet. That's a contract because there's a DNS registry. Eventually, in 2010, ICANN opened up this notion that anybody can apply for a string. You have to pay about $200,000 in application fees. You have to have financial soundness, a business plan. It was like almost a 200-page business plan that you have to create with proper sort of forecasts and things like that. How are you going to run this business? And ICANN would then award the application to, to you if you were the sole applicant. If there were multiple applicants, it goes into an auction. And you win it an auction. So we spent... Two years building out business plans, 2010, 2012. It was me along with a small team of four people. We researched, so I picked every, I picked a dictionary of 33,000 words and straits. And we manually went through it for like hours, days, and selected about 600 of them that we felt would be good top of the domains. With those 600, we did all the possible research. So like 
like like I said, dot agency, like, like names which people would want. Yeah, dot doctor. So we had lots of ways. We basically looked at entities with. So typically, let's say if you don't get Akshay.com, the next thing you might register in AkshayOnline.com. So therefore, we felt like online could be a good thing because you could do Akshay on online. So or professions like doctor, etc. We went to Google and looked at what the words people search for. So lots and lots of sources. Did we finally narrowed it down? We created the uh, projections for about a hundred of them. Selected 31, applied for those 31, and we won about nine options out of those 31. And so what that means now is that we run the dot store registry. So every domain name that ends in dot store, you would buy from, you know, network solutions or GoDaddy or Wix or whenever you buy it from, but they are registering the knowledge, you're buying it from us. So we would, so that $10 fees, uh, which you, uh, what used to be a $10 fees, that comes to you now. That's correct. What I so like a dot store, first year might be like five, six dollars, et cetera, as a promotional fee, but every renewal is about twenty-five to forty dollars, depending on the different DRDs. And so that annuity income comes to us. The registrars mark it up and basically sell it to their customers. But yes, precisely. So this business of selling domains doesn't seem to be profitable. If if it is still a ten dollar annual fees, because you can buy a domain for even two dollars, for example, or five dollars or Stuff like that. You can, but the cost is nothing, right? So today uh, in Radix, our gross profit margin is 9%. So every domain that we sell, our cost on that domain is 5%. And then the fee, the overhead OPEX is also fixed. You know, we have a team of about 70 people in Radix. That means never going to grow to like 700. We, like 70 people will be able to manage all the registries in perpetuity. So, so it's actually a very high margin business. So we're generating, I think currently Radix generating about 20 million, 22 million in profit every year, growing at about 45% year on year. And we invested $25 million. So the company is now worth half a billion dollars and in less than 10 years of investing $25 million. Okay. Also, uh, what I was implying was not at the Radix level, but at the level below it, like say a GoDaddy. For those folks, do they make money selling domains? On legacy DRTs like common net, they make a margin of maybe over a dollar to dollars. Sometimes maybe two and a half. On renewals, maybe a bit more. On new DRTs, they actually make almost 70 to 100% profit margins. So when they sell, if we sell them a dot store for 10 bucks, they sell 20 bucks. So they're making like a 10 bucks margin on that directly. Plus with GoDaddy, every time you buy a domain name, average cart value ends up being, I think, $150 something like that. Meaning that when you buy a domain name, you buy a hosting package, you buy email, like you buy all these other associated services, the average card value will end up being, you know, $150 or for more. Tell me about Titan. So Titan is basically a email service and email calendar contacts. It's a modern email platform for micro SMBs and small businesses with unique capabilities where small businesses can actually better manage customer relationships because most small businesses don't have like CRM software, what do you call it software, and all this 20 other things. So the email like a multi-account email interface with some unique capabilities, read receipts, some CRM features, you know, for follow-up reminders, that enables them to actually actually manage their business needs. We sell it in partnership with actually registrars and hosting companies, website design companies. So we've got, you know, WordPress, Newfound, uh, NameSilo, Name.com, whole host of different partners that sell it. And WordPress actually now is also an investor apart from being a strategic partner. So you go to WordPress.com and you buy WordPress hosting along with the, the email bundle will be tied in. Got it. So uh, essentially, it's like a G Suite competitor, but probably the pricing is more suited for SMBs than G Suite pricing. Yes, and partly because the fact that you know, product for sandpoint were put to a better than Google used to use, use the email plan, but we don't have the full suite, so we can't charge the same price. So we don't have docs and spreadsheets and slides and a whole host of other things that Google has in its suite. So we have calendar contacts, email, we have chat, 
and we have some level of video calling basically. So those three things that we have. For the most part, it's actually email calendar contacts. That's the package we sell, which is email basically. So yes, it's priced more affordably, has some unique features. We use it basically ourselves. And so we replaced uh, Google Mail with Titan internally ourselves and, and it's, it works like a breeze at the channel. So. For the reselling partners, essentially it's a way for them to increase the cart size. And, and I'm assuming they would get a healthy margin. Is the pricing decided by you or they can price at whatever they want and you charge a certain amount? Like We charge a revenue share on whatever they price. We give guidance on what we think it should be priced at. So we give a range and some minimum amounts, etc. It does result in a higher margin, greater control and capacity to them to see selling Google because it, it can be co-branded and it basically provides some other integrations into their platform. So that's a better device. Okay. And th- this is again something you built for in-house use and then you decided to platformize it in a way. No, actually we started building it out specifically for that mark- audience market. When we were selling Flock, we wanted to integrate Flock into email. So we started exploring, can we integrate into some existing provider and leverage them to kind of resell our services. And in the process, we felt like there was nothing explicitly put out there except for Google and Microsoft. And so we're just like, instead of sitting and integrating somebody else's platform, we build our own. And we end up building the whole thing from scratch. Okay. So Flock is like what Talk2 evolved into. Tell me about that. It competes with Slack or Microsoft Teams, but you know, much smaller right now. We have a few hundred thousand paid users and uh, it provides yeah, instant messaging, video calling, chat channels, etc. for small businesses. Okay. And what is the pricing of Flockland? It's about $3 per user per month. We $2 to $3 per user per month. I think it's priced a bit lower than that in India. And in developed markets, it's priced that's slightly higher. And Aten is, again, like run by a team or are you actively involved in it? I mean, I am basically actively involved, yes. But I have some senior leadership, a uh, person who heads go to market, Kora, a uh, person who heads products in Nanak, and an individual who heads Kalpesh, heads our engineering team. And they are veterans. I mean, Nanak, Kalpesh worked with me 14, 18 plus years respectively. So really amazing guys. Kora's worked with me for a few years, but again, sort of leading that entire piece and so Three of them, along with HR and finance leadership, who are holding the fort together. Basically, we follow sort of OKRs very rigorously. The organization is a strong uh, proponent of it. And so they work with me jointly, develop strategy and goals for the year, and then essentially assisting with check-ins on a monthly basis. How do you decide which businesses need your attention and which don't? For example, Radix doesn't need your attention, but Titan does. Or you, you have chosen to be involved in Titan and not Radix. Uh, how, what is the framework that you use? Now, in hindsight, there's a pretty standard framework that, that has evolved over time. Zeta is now my fourth or fifth, depending on trade, look at sort of SaaS business. And so this is what I've done all my life. But every business that I've seen, every product or company or opportunity that I've sort of pursued has gone through four phases. So there's planning, discovery, scaling, and steady state. There are clear deliverables at the end of each stage and uh, clear nuances that distinguish each stage. In the early stages of planning and discovery, there's a lot more ambiguity, a lot more uncertainty, and there are still outcomes to be achieved. By the time you get to steady state service, service, you know, friendly stable and steady state. So planning is where I'm deciding whether I want to do the business and fundamentally trying to validate the hypothesis that, that I would have on who is the persona, what is the problem, how does that my product solve it 10x better than anybody else's? What is my go-to-market strategy? So at least one traction channel. What is my revenue model? And what is my mode? So trying to validate these with as minimal effort and as much research as we can. When we move from planning to discovery, that validation moves from theory to practice. So 
we've gone past the stage of theory and now we want to build the first product MVP. We want to get product market fit. We want to get a actual traction channel where LTV is greater than CAC. We want to get a decent NPS, high retention. And these are the four deliverables that this company pays. Once we get all these four, we move into the scaling phase where basically now I'm like, I can put in capital behind the company and continue to scale because it's got product market fit, it's got a traction channel and so on and so forth. And once you've exhausted and gotten to a reasonably sort of high in a leadership market position, now it's kind of steady sale. We grow at 15%, 20% year on year and there's no issues after that. I am very deeply involved in planning, discovery and halfway or early stage of scaling. By the time we are midway through scaling, I can be reasonably hands-off. Some really brilliant people, you know, who will be working with me through those phases can take over completely and, and deliver the outcome. And so those are my, on a full product or per business basis, I think those are these phases when I'm uh, deeply involved. Like uh, essentially for Titan right now, what is, uh, is it at discovery or is it at scaling? Uh, are you happy with the product or do you think that more is needed? So Titan actually has, the first product is email for micro SMBs. That product has actually gone past discovery. We have a product market fit. We have high NPS. I think right now we're at about 52 or 53 in NPS, but target to get to 60 by the end of this year. We have really good traction with this partnership traction channel, etc. So most of the business is now focused on scaling. And, and I am already, to a certain extent, hands-off in that scaling process, basically. And I've already started working with the team to kind of swap, go down that path. There are two other products for the Titan that we're contemplating, one for end consumers and one for mid-market and large-size companies. Those will start out at planning and discovery. So they're not yet at the uh, scaling stage. So the end consumer would be like a freemium offering, like say a hot, Hotmail, like, like what Hotmail pioneered in a way. Well, I guess it's what we pioneered, Gmail pioneered in a different way, etc. We're still early stages to figure out what the persona problem should be. But yes, it'll be some sort of streaming model, etc. And how will the enterprise model be different? Like more value-added features? Well, I think in the enterprise model, it's a different model that we're contemplating, which is that with a small business, the actual email of the domain is hosted with us they mostly started out their journey with us. With most enterprises, they are currently already on some email service provider and we can't make a thousand people organization or two thousand people organization shift their email service provider to us. There's not much tangible value there. So when looking at a model which would be more amenable to being able to use the capabilities of a creating or an existing email service provider. Now, this is still in planning stage. So we may not even get to discovery because we feel like there is no merit. And there are also ancillary products within Titan that we're building out or rather that are in discovery stage. So now that we have budget the problems of certain users. We're also looking at add-on products that we can build to upsell additional products and services to convert the whole thing to a sweet intervention. So those are the two discovery parts or planning parts that are happening this year and early next year. And what about Flock? Where is Flock at? So Flock is at that same steady state level where a couple of hundred thousand users, most of the organization's attention is sort of focused on titles. So we haven't actually spent much time in growing it. It did fast product market fail where we perhaps, I wouldn't say we failed because we didn't properly attempt when we attempted it, but we haven't like completely given up there. But at the end of discovery, as I said, we need good NPS, good product market fit and a great traction channel. I think we had the first two, but we didn't manage to crack the traction channel perfectly. In the meantime, Titan sort of took over. So we've kind of spend a lot of time and attention there and uh, and block continues basically this tiny bits of development the product is fairly ready it never formally entered full scale scaling stage as yet and uh, radix is like obviously steady state and radix is steady state yes in radix you would be competing against say google yeah. google is also going after top level domain registry right like so google has some but the main competitors of course verisign 
which is the Comnet registry. Company called uh, Donuts and Affiliates, which merged with each other. They have, I think, a few hundred TLDs. So those are our two main competitors. Is this a business in which uh, there is continuous competition? Like, will there continue to be more top-level domains being given? And do you continuously need to research and keep bidding and all that? Or uh, is it like once a decade, something like an event happens in which more... Uh, domains are added or so the first round of domains were added in 2012 the next round was supposed to happen in 2020-ish somewhere now it's 2024 or 2025 and after that at some point they do want to make it on tap but the truth is that there is no new competition possible and the reason for that is not because that will be new rounds or not but because all of the best strings are already taken we have the, we have the best genetics for instance in the entire market donuts have the best specifics they have all of the like doctor, not agency type, not domain names, etc. So all the good streams are already taken. So there is no competition now that's possible. So it's a fairly steady business with more that won't really change in characteristics at all. So let's talk about Zeta now. What was the origination of Zeta? Because I can understand Radix and Titan are very closely linked to DirectEye. They are in a way extensions of what DirectEye was doing. It's a better way to solve problems of customers of DirectEye. But Zeta is like completely different. So how did that happen? Banking is sort of an area that I've been passionate about myself for quite some time. From the time I started Transacute itself, at the first place, uh, I was kind of a payment gateway. So it's a payments play. And my co-founder, Ramki, he and me worked together on a couple of other things before. He was taking a break. And during that time in 2014, we both started exploring this notion of, shall we start something in payments? So think of that as the planning phase. So on of 2014 and early 2015, we're like, it's a massive opportunity. That's nine to use all the sort of legacy tech and software. They're not really be able to find more experiences. They don't have the best platforms. How do we disrupt banking? So that was kind of our, our original thought process. So, so both of us wanted to do something in the payment space. And there were, I guess, a couple of parts that went, we went through exploration. We started reading a lot on regulation, what's possible, and one of the first instincts was, should we start a new bank or a challenger bank or a fintech of some form? And shortly after, we kind of discarded the idea because you're firstly getting a full-fledged banking license in India was next to impossible. Second, banks actually have a limited return capital, right? So limited return equity. So you have to have a certain amount of equity to be able to lend a certain amount of money. And because of that limitation, you can only earn a certain amount of return. Like the best banks will give you 40, 45% returns. Most of them will give you 20, 22% returns on equity. So very, very equity heavy play, very regulated. We felt like if you want to expand across the globe, we'd have to actually set up regulatorily in so many different jurisdictions. So lots and lots of sort of, as I said, very, very regulated. Limited return equity, a heavy regulated industry, can't expand across the globe. We'll never get majority market share. We're never going to be a bank which has most of the market share across the globe and things like that. So we felt like our ability to disturb banking in a high returns manner, in a scalable manner, is by really revamping the entire technology stack that operates banks today. And the more we dug into it, we just like, we were literally shocked with the monolithic software that most of these banks currently use. Some of them, by the way, were written in the 1960s, 1970s, basically, and have not changed much since then. Most of the tech, at least in late 90s, not even early 2000, before the cloud existed, before smartphones existed, Vision Plus, which runs most of the credit cards of, of India, the upgrade cycles are like four years before you get a new version. Versus today, when we think about cloud detail, continuous integration, fitness development, microservices architecture, 100% API-driven and headless. Uh, there are all these modern software paradigms that enable flexibility, nimbleness, speed of innovation, configurability, self-service, 
upgrade to create modern experiences, provide infinite scalability. None of these things existed. And we set out with this naive ambition of rewriting the full stack. So co-banking, issuer processing, payment processing, everything for banks and printers. And we have over the last seven years, Akshay built the best, most modern full stack banking platform that can run a full bank or a fintech across retail and commercial banking, across deposits, credit cards, debit cards, prepaid accounts, loans, etc. That basically can provide a much more modern, instantly scalable, next-gen co-banking and payment processing platforms, banks and people. We launched it in India and Europe and now in the US. And we've got, we're only focusing on mid to large size banks and fintechs. So that's really our focus area and providing this basically full-fledged modern platform to enable them to create modern experiences for their customers. What do you mean by monolithic software? You said that the legacy software is monolithic. What does that mean? So it's single-use, single-purpose built as a non-modular, non, not loosely coupled microservice-based architecture. What I mean by that is Spicer, which is one of the largest legacy tech institutions, they're big, they're massive as a company, gives them that credit, grown predominantly through acquisition. They have, I think, 20 plus different four banking platforms, maybe three to four different credit card processing platforms, a couple of different debit card processing, a couple of different prepaid processing. So when you go as a bank, you're buying a credit card processing platform, you're buying a four banking platform, you're buying a prepaid platform that does just that. In a credit card processing platform, the entity modeling is created such that a card is an account holder is an account. All three are clubbed into one entity. We have the opportunity to sort of reinvent banking from scratch. So we actually decompose banking into its most fundamental components, what we call the foundation model. So we built a infinitely scalable ledger and bookkeeping service called Aura, which basically handles all the common concerns of any asset or liability product. So it will basically manage a ledger, manage double entry bookkeeping, cycles, statementing, interest computations, fees and charges. So that's our ledger service. Then we have a, then we have a card service which basically handles all kinds of cards, tokenized cards, hybrid cards. It's actually an instrument, payment instrument, so channels all kinds of payment instruments. And there's a account holder service that can handle real persons, legal persons, full life cycle account holder. There is a transaction switch which handles all of the nuances of any transaction. We can connect with Visa, Mastercard, IFBS, UPI, ACH, etc. But it handles a full transaction from authentication, authorizations, clearance, and settlement. And using these components now, to actually construct on top of that, we built the account module. So that they Ruby, which is the revolving credit card account module, Pearl, which is the prepaid account module, Sapphire is our savings account module, Topaz is our term deposits module. <coughs> but it essentially operates as this set of loosely coupled microservices that are what we call polymorphic. So in one single stack, in a modular manner, in a flexible, configurable manner, you can essentially launch the most creative possible credit card products or debit card products or deposit or loan products. Unlike this sort of monolithic software that can only serve that one purpose, not flexible, not configurable, not cloud native. That's the key distinction. Okay, okay, okay. So polymorphic essentially means highly configurable. You can create whatever kind of product you want to create as a bank using this stack. You can influence behavior without having to write code. So if you take Aura, which is our ledger service, credit cards have a revolving monthly computed interest that's debited to a customer's account. Savings accounts have a daily balance-based interest that's credited to a customer's account. But Aura doesn't have to bother or care. It, is, it can essentially behave like a credit card ledger or it can behave like a savings account ledger. The way it's built. We don't have to write new code to make it behave like a savings account or 
rather we can influence behavior through through configuration through basic plugins or external snippets that essentially provide that behavior okay because everything in banking is essentially a ledger so you built one strong ledger and then all the various product forms are but to be honest everything in banking is around these four entities so fundamentally everything is a ledger and then transactions coming through a payment network the ledger is held by an account holder and the instruments serve as a token vector for authentication authorization on the network the two main pieces would be payments and accounts so athena which is our switch and aura which is the ledger service and then the other two basically are on top like account holders and cards what made you confident that you can figure this out this is something which would need a lot of insider information to understand for example what a switch is like how it would connect to visa and mastercard like this is stuff which is typically done by insiders who been in this space for a while and and you had like a complete outsider perspective here well the confidence goes back i guess to some sense to sixth grade i would say i think i have always believed and that's partly also thanks to our upbringing my father used to keep saying you know you can achieve anything you set your mind to that's his most quoted mantra basically keeps repeating that all the time at least kept repeating it back then but but uh, and also the biographies that i read the more biographies are my favorite genre of books the more biographies you read you realize But most of these folks who started some of the latest ones that I read and love Elon Musk buying it is Steve Jobs sort of latest buying it etc but you realize that fundamentally there is individuals who are passionate about problem space and of course when you start out which is why I said there's a planning phase and discovery phase and so on and so forth by the way the other other elements of those phases are that by the time you get to uh, early stage of scaling we also understood most of the unknown unknowns when you starting planning there is a very small set of known knowns and a very large universe of known unknowns and unknown unknowns by the time you finish product market fit you get to scaling you've covered most of the known unknowns and a reasonable chunk of the unknown unknowns and that i think early on you basically as entrepreneurs you have i also say you know, entrepreneurs tend need to have a healthy dose of delusion right so you have to start with this this level of confidence like yeah if you if you work towards it you can achieve anything in life so that belief always exists okay so tell me about the zero to one here like i was assuming the direct i sale would have given you enough funds to not initially look for any external funding like you would have been able to self fund it like yeah so me and my co-founder we put it 40 million in capital that's what sort of was the initial capital raise built out first version of the core platform and then built a use case on top of it which was employee benefits you know meal benefits corporate benefit transport benefits fuel benefits etc and it was our first use case built in top of the platform started selling it to enterprises in the country and, and got massively in Accenture and Capgemini and Amazon and a whole host of some really large customers and then subsequently our uh, efforts went into partnership with Sodexo which is now been a long term partnership the last 5 years they actually invested in 30 million in our company a few years after so sometime in 2018 issue so as a strategic investor and a customer so Sodexo was like a go to market partner for you or were you helping them digitize their technology and because they are also into the same employee benefit space in a way like the first two years we were competitors and when we struck up the partnership it became then a clear boundary of we will provide technology and they will own the customer so we transferred whatever customers we had acquired we transferred over to them and again step we have a partial ownership of Sonexo India and then they invested in Zeta Parent and then they gave us contracts in Spain, Vietnam, Philippines, Italy, UK where we provide similar platform with the same underlying core to various sort of entities there 
and then they became the operator of issuing business and we are a TSP and that's what has always been the core focus. So what is the problem that you were solving for corporates in employee benefits? What was the existing state that you were trying to improve? So two layers. So firstly, Zeta is a banking platform, so it's one layer below that. But the product that we built on top of that, the benefits use platform. Full digital issuance. Issuance of what? Like we did uh, benefit product. So you got a card when you as a as an Accenture, give you can give a mobile app and a card to let's say your hundred thousand employees. And uh, you can then create an entitlement. There's like a prepaid card. So this is something like like instead of spending for a flight ticket and then submitting a reimbursement, you can get a card or your employee can get a card which they can use to spend on stuff. And there is no need to apply for reimbursement. Something like that. Theoretically, yes. But that's an expense management product which works on the same platform. What we built as an employee benefits product where you basically give entitlement to the employee. So Accenture says that, oh, I want to give 5,000 rupees a month to Akshay that he can use at any restaurant. I want to give uh, 50,000 a year that he can use at any gym membership. I want to give 2,000 bucks a month that he can use for Ola and Uber and trains and transport. And that's a benefit that I'm giving him. But I want to make sure that the benefit is spent for the purpose that I am that I am prescribing. So he can't take the meal money and go and spend it in entertainment or cinema. So our system essentially ensured the enforcement of rules with zero manual intervention. So zero touch workflows to enable enforcement of spending. Same thing can be applied to expense management, which was the next product that we were planning to build. But we instead end up selling the core platform to banks and that's become so big now that we don't we're not, we haven't built that myself yet. How would you ensure compliance? Uh, this would be because every POS machine has a code that what is the nature of the business. Like say a, a gym, a, a POS machine at a gym would have some sort of a code that this is a gym. And then you, therefore, it would only approve the transaction if it was done in that code or, or like how does that happen? So in multitude of ways. One is that Visa MasterCard themselves have an MCC code merchant category. Second is that we support closed looping of transactions. So where individuals can go and verify and validate categorize. So whether it's our employees or selection employees, so we go and tie up with merchants and we, we onboard their merchant IDs and terminal IDs by swiping one transaction and then in the system we can mark that transaction as this gym transaction. So, so we had a fully curated list of merchants of so upwards of three now three and a half lakh merchants to three lakh plus merchants. And that curated list also enabled auto sort of crowdsource curation. So you go to a grocery store and you swipe your card and the transaction is declined. You can submit it to be added and, and then we can basically do crowd curation. So multiple techniques and different benefits call for different techniques to be applied. And why do companies care that uh, this is not misused? Is there a tax compliance issue here? Like say, if you're giving somebody like money to spend in restaurants, then that is tax-free for him. And therefore, they need to care that it's only used in restaurants. One is that there's a tax reason. But second, also as a benefit, the reason I'm giving, a, if I'm giving you a gym benefit, it's because I believe in the well-being of my employees. And so the rationale behind the benefit is that the usage is for a particular purpose. If the purpose is not met, then the benefit is, then I might as well give cash in his salary. So, so both of those were important aspects. How did you end up building a ba banking platform and use it for employee benefits like so the goal was always to build a banking platform we could have started with any one particular use case so the first bifurcation was should our use case be a retail use case or a commercial company based use case we decided to go down the path of companies instead of end users because end user cap is very high you have to raise a lot of capital burn a lot of capital to acquire end customers and so on and so we felt let's go down the company path and within the company path we could have gone down expense management or employee benefits or a bunch of host of services and the reason we took employee benefits is expense cards if you're an accenture 
you typically issue them to like 500 of your top executives. But benefits you give to 100% of your employees. So we felt that the engagement levels would be higher, the adoption rates would be higher. So we chose a particular use. That's the rationale that we took to decide which use case to choose. How did the first sale to a bank happen? Like that SaaS for banks, how did that business get started? So we already had the platform. For the first four years, we were using it for real benefits while building out the rest of the platform. In the fifth year, I think 2009 or fifth year, so fourth year in 2019, we first started selling it to fintechs. So in November 2019, we had this big event at Law. We invited all like, hundreds of fintechs and banks, etc. Gave a full demo of the platform. Signed up a whole host of fintechs who wanted to create their own prepaid cards or reimbursement cards or things like that. And in February in Mumbai, we hosted a large event for banks. So we had representatives of about 50 to 60 different banks that close to about 150 participants, senior leadership and so forth, where we gave a full demo of our issuance platform to banks. From there, we started, we signed up. We already signed up RBL before that from benefits itself. So we were using them, we were using IDFC. We signed up Cypher, our ACS service for Indusain. Signed up with HDFC's conversation started from there, basically from that event. So slowly but surely started moving to that phase. And then, so they took us to a few markets. So Dexo by themselves are also an issuer and they are, therefore they're a bank in our system as far as we can sell because they have a PPI license or a, or a, so we were already powering one bank in that sense for a particular use case. And now recently we launched a year ago in the US and we're seeing a lot of traction for credit card processing, which is the product that we've entered the US markets with. So that's sort of step-by-step progressing. Okay, okay. What product did you see traction in, in India? In India, we've actually sold the full retail banking platform. So starting off with payments, which is prepaid and UPI, and then adding credit cards pretty shortly. That should launch in by end of, so prepaid and payments will it's, it's always been like credit card should launch by September or so. And then sometime early next year, we're looking at launching sales cards. And how is it priced? Is it on per transaction or is it a fixed fee? So everything boils down to a single per use, per active user per month pricing for the most part. There are some small other fees like a setup fee and things like that. But bulk of the fees is SaaS. And it's per user, per, per active customer per month for each of the modules. Basically. Like your playbook here was pretty similar to Director, right? Like in the sense that you built something and then you decided to make it a platform, make it available to others and like essentially uh, similar to what you did there also. Yeah, the key difference, uh, and maybe not the key difference, it is a similar playbook, but here we had always started out the notion that we're going to build a banking platform that we will actually sell to banks and fintechs. Just that the journey took a little longer to get there because you know, comprehensive banking platform is a fairly sizable, which is also the reason why the amount of investment that's gone by this company is fairly sizable in comparison to kind of math companies and things like that, but fairly sizable kind of investment in time frame. But otherwise, the, the model is, has similarities. And how did the software ground happen? Like, I believe that was the most recent round, right? Yes, that's the only external institutional round. So, Sodexo was a, a strategic deal where we basically jointly decided that if they're giving us such a large contract, they wanted to invest some money and we wanted them also uh, tied in. So we took a strategic investment. But so SoftBank, we actually back in 2019 end that we started exploring the process and 2021. So January, February, 2020, we kind of uh, did a mini roadshow 
met about six, seven investors and then March COVID hit basically. And then, so we kind of stopped all of the engagement, et cetera. And then reinitiated the process end of 2020, early 2021, and then closed round with soft banking, I think May 2021 basically. So we had uh, finally in October to December, no, November, December, Jan 2020 and 2021, met up with about maybe 10, 12 10 or 11 funds, among the exact number. Three of them that we really liked and would like us. So continued conversations with those three and then eventually, eventually settled with SoftBank. How did uh, COVID impact like all the businesses like Zeta, Titan, Granix? All three of them grew way faster than what would have otherwise happened if COVID wasn't around. Well, there's both an upside and a downside. So we sold a platform to HDFC Bank throughout COVID time. So funny enough, we never had a single in-person meeting with anybody at the bank and met 250 people virtually over the course of six months to actually make that sale happen. And I believe that if there was no COVID, most of those meetings would have been required to be in-person meeting. Same process that took place in six months may have ended up taking up a year, year and a half. And we found this universally across the board. Our sales speed increased. Banks wanted to also because they were seeing the impact of COVID. Uh, uh, externally, banks wanted to digitize faster. Digital transformation exercises became much more important and things. And that's continuing now. We see that trend across the globe. So we're seeing a faster adoption. Same with Titan. More people need sort of websites, email, etc. Same with Radix. More people need domain names. We actually had our best year during sort of COVID year because large number of businesses felt the need to go online. So all three businesses saw lifted naturals. I think there was a downside impact in terms of efficiency, productivity. You can't build great software where everybody is hot. So, as in it takes more effort. Software building is a creative exercise. You need to do whiteboarding. You need to do problem solving. You need to do create that camaraderie and, and uh, the sort of team bonding and spirit and all that stuff. And we missed that. So, hopefully now, slowly but surely, things will resume to normalcy. At least we'll have the opportunity to do sort of a hybrid model where people perhaps can come together, you know, a week in a month or a couple of days here and there, etc. And actually meet people face-to-face, which I think is important. But but overall, it definitely had a positive impact on business. So you were SDFC's like light in shine, shining out. SDFC was stopped by RBI from issuing new cards due to platform-related issues. So like you you kind of helped make that like digitize and modern, is it? I would say each other, right? And I think in many ways, they have been a huge boost for us in terms of right out of the gate, they've been amazing partners to trust us and trust us the responsibility of what is the largest private sector bank in the country on a platform that is fairly new. And so I think in some sense, they've actually contributed meaningfully to us and vice versa. They use a significant number of legacy stacks and we expect to benefit a generated significant amount of benefit to modern stack that we're providing to them. So I think it's kind of a mutual partnership and really amazing one. We're sort of excited to see what we can do together. They're a very progressive bank in terms of their thoughts and, and thinking. They just were saddled with platforms that would not support their ambitions and vision. And, and now jointly, we can create a partnership that will actually truly leverage their trust. Huge trust economy in the multi sort of industry and audience, etc. And so, you know, we'll be able to jointly leverage the, what they've created as an asset across 27 plus years and the trust, the, the reach, the uh, scale, along with the most modern platform be able to create the most innovative as digital experience in the country. And uh, what are they starting with? Which product? Cards, I guess. So they're starting with payments and prepaid, launching credit cards shortly after. All of that will happen this year. And then savings account and others will go live early next year. What is uh, Zeta's current traction like? Like what kind of revenue numbers do you do? Or is it too early to really? So we are doing reasonably well in terms of revenue, but we're not disclosing some numbers per se. We're obviously not profitable or break even. This is a 
heavy investment space and in fact a bulk of our investment. So the good part about Zeta is unlike most other baby SaaS companies who have to burn a lot of capital investment behind building the platform, but also a similar amount of capital investment behind selling the platform. The benefit with Zeta is that we have exactly 300 potential clients in the world, which is the top 300 banks, and maybe another three to 400 fintechs that would be meaningful in size. And so the number of customers is limited, so our CAC is not very high. But a huge amount of investment has gone behind building the platform, a huge, huge amount of investment. And so and continues to go behind building the platform. We have the best, most uh, comprehensive engineering team for both backend and frontend and the kind of technology platform they've created. Mm-hmm. And most other companies, country, are not working on as much fundamental tech as we are, I guess, in, in building out this whole bank platform. So that's really where bulk of the investment is going to go for the next couple of years. The expectation currently is that by the time we get to 2024, that we should be operationally break-even or close to operationally break-even from 2025 onwards, but theoretically shouldn't require any external uh, external capital. Yeah, and what's your revenue target for 24 or 25? Like It's in the hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, the, the contracts that we've currently signed or are signing themselves would add up to a few hundred million dollars in that. So uh, currently, you'd say Zeta is in the scaling stage or like has it crashed discovery? I wouldn't say that. Yeah. In enterprise software, it takes longer. So I would say that we're way past the planning stage. We're probably towards the end of discovery and early scaling in, in some markets for some products. But I would say to get well within the scaling stage is probably another year, year and a half away. I would love to understand from you how to do organization building. You have built multiple organizations and each of which has scaled significantly to market leadership positions. And this is not obviously a one man, like the credit doesn't go to one man. It goes to the team that you built for each of those organizations. So uh, tell me how you do that. Like what are some learnings over there that you can share? Sure. I mean, in fact, I would say a small fraction of the credit goes to one man. I think the larger chunk is most. There's a lot of smart people out there who can come up with brilliant ideas. But I think if I can take credit for one thing, it's actually focusing a lot on talent acquisition. I spend a lot of time on recruitment, hiring leadership, hiring the right talent. I'm very pedantic about it, etc. And so that's probably one area where, where I say I can take potential credit for. Do you have a playbook for hiring best talent? There are some some themes. Hiring about the meat of the organization. Hiring sort of people who you believe will add knowledge. You know, so in the interview process, sort of be excited about the fact they can bring knowledge to the organization, et cetera. Leaving the interview with like this feeling that that's going to be an additive process to the average score of the organization as opposed to sort of reducing the average score in some form or the other. I tend to dive, I fundamentally believe in asking a lot of case study oriented, problem solving oriented questions. So my interviews, are, I don't believe in like, oh, describe what you've done in the past. I care much less than about that. I care much more about if I'm giving you a brand new problem that you've not encountered before, or that might be in the adjacency space, but you've not encountered that problem before. I really want to think about, you know, uh, I really want to sort of focus on how you think about that new problem, how you go about sort of some uh, first principles thinking, defining the fundamentals, figuring out how you solve that problem, et cetera. So that's really where a lot of focus is spent when I'm interviewing candidates. So as a manager, uh, are you like the big picture guy who looks at the vision and looks at trends and figures out what is the direction to go in? Or are you like more into the details and what kind of a manager are you? So in the planning and discovery phase, I do both. And I'm actually a bit of a micromanager there when it comes to planning and discovery. Depending on who I'm working with, there's so a lot of people and folks who work with you for a longest period of time, there's much less of the need of micromanagement in that regards. But otherwise, during the planning and discovery phase, I get to, I dive into the weeds. Post-scaling phase, 
I'm almost the opposite, which is I will take a very hands-off approach and only focus on contributing to big picture strategy, not even necessarily actively deciding the strategy myself. I was looking at your Wikipedia profile, which says that you are amongst the 100 richest Indians. <laughs> so I'm sure you'd be getting a lot of people pitching ideas to you for funding and also what is your way in which you evaluate when people pitch ideas to you for funding and stuff like that so truth be told Akshay I am not an investor I have never loved passively investing I have loved actively building businesses I would say more than 80% of my personal investments are all into companies of my own so I put in 25 million to that age put in 40 million into Z put in a chunk of cash into Titan and I would gladly put my own money into businesses that I'm actively involved because I love building like my own hands I have made some investments. I'm an investor and a mentor in an academy to Karam Munchan, who's one of the most outstanding entrepreneurs, again, that I, I know of. And I, it's a space I'm very passionate about. Education is generally a space that I'm very passionate about. And of late, I've, in, I've invested in a handful of companies, but nothing close to what most other sort of entrepreneurs out there have done. I've probably, overall, I've probably got less than 10 investments, maybe less than seven investments across the board. So... I don't actually, I'm not necessarily at the receiving end of many pitches. Most of my time is spent on building the companies that I am I'm currently operating. But, but what makes you bullish about an idea? It'll go back to kind of, and this all comes from hindsight bias because I've been pretty stupid in some of my business plans in the past and so learned through mistakes. And so it's kind of a template. I think anybody who has fundamental clarity about the persona, the problem, the product, and my product, how is it solving that problem sort of in a 10x better way. A rough idea of go-to-market and rough idea of revenue. And the business proposition has a moat. Those are the fundamentals. On top of that, you add market opportunity and size and scale. So you know, too tiny, then very interesting. If, I, if somebody has fundament, reasonable fundamental clarity, or at least a hypothesis based on fundamental clarity, depending on the stage you invest in. If you're investing in a growth stage company, you're past the discovery stage. They have to already be in scale. So it's a proven idea. If you're investing pre, pre-discovery, then if they have fundamental clarity, passion, I also believe in hands-on and depth as being sort of model criteria, and that's my style of working. So I do prefer entrepreneurs who have um, great depth and not just breadth and uh, are not sort of jack of all trades, but rather master of many trades, let's put it that way. So yeah, those are the areas that I would say are, are areas that would give me comfort, non-compromisables. If you like the Founder Thesis podcast, then do check out our other shows on subjects like marketing, technology, career advice, books, and drama. Visit thepodium.in, that is T-H-E-P-O-D-I-U-M dot I-N for a complete list of all our shows.